You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Bible for Normal People and another solo episode by moi. So thank you for listening, and thank you for just being a part of the first season here. We are coming towards the end of the first season, which is pretty cool. Nobody gave us a shot, but we showed them. Here we are. But uh, it's it's been fun, and uh, we're thankful for all the support that we've gotten for all these you know, wonderful, faithful listeners like you, and um, for being part of our uh, Patreon family as well as we try to create this online community of people who are seeking, exploring, and who feel the need to question their faith, to interrogate their faith in ways that uh, maybe they're not always allowed to do in other contexts. So we're very proud to be a part of um, that kind of faith journey that Jared and I are both on, and that many others are on as well. So, with that, um, again, this is season one, we're coming to the end, and we've had a couple of uh, guests on, Brian Zond and Greg Boyd, uh, focusing specifically on divine violence and violence in the Bible. And I thought I'd sort of take my shot at it as well here, uh, sort of to give my own thoughts. You know, I've thought quite a bit about this myself, and I have my own angle to take. And uh, it's also a topic that I get asked about a lot. I mean... In, in my book, The Bible Tells Me So, that came out uh, back in 2014, uh, that's the first substantive chapter because this is what uh, you know people ask me about more often than not. This this is it. You know how how can God uh, condone violence or commit violence or turn a blind eye to violence in the Bible, um, especially when you come to the New Testament and it seems like that sort of thing is toned down rather significantly. It's not eradicated, but it's toned down significantly. And you know how to make sense of divine violence when you're also looking at the cross, which is. Uh, you know, God, I think, bringing an end to violence uh, uh, by not requiring a sacrifice to be appeased, but by sacrificing his son on our behalf. Uh, And of course, that's violent, but it's not the same kind of violence you see uh, in the Old Testament, uh, which is usually directed towards other people. And this time, it's something that, you know, so to speak, God absorbs and God participates in. So, you know, with that in mind, I, I thought we would just look at a few things here uh, that, that are relevant for this topic of violence and maybe just look at three examples and then try to tie together how we can look at those episodes from an angle that I think respects them historically, but also, and I'm going to use this word cautiously, relativizes them so that they don't become sort of a command or a model to follow, but just the way it was and how people thought. That's sort of what I'm after, okay? So I think the three things we can talk about quickly are uh, Noah and the flood. Uh, The second is, and of course, you know, that's violence on God's part, uh, killing everybody. Uh, Over-the-top punishments is a second uh, category. This is uh, uh, punishments promised to Israel for disobedience. And the third is uh, the conquest of Canaan, of course. It's hard to 
talk about this topic without getting to that one. That's that's uh, that's on the throne there, you know, when it comes to divine violence in the Old Testament. And uh, that's the one that people usually go to when they have questions. So we'll look at those three. And, you know, the first, of course, is, is the flood story. And, uh, you know, it's not a kid's story. You know, you get to chapter six of the Bible. Let me think about this for a second. You know, chapter six, God's had it, and he's says everybody needs to drown. Every animal, every human, except for a choice few, Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives, to repopulate the earth. And, uh, you know, that's that's a hard story to have very early on when you're, uh, you know, looking to the Bible for spiritual sustenance, and it's hard to know what to do with that. This is one of the reasons why, you know, I recommend to people when they ask, uh, you know, where should I start reading the Bible? I'm new to this. I don't say start at the beginning. I don't say start at Genesis. I think you need to sort of put in your hours first, learning just the nature of the Bible and antiquity and maybe getting the gospel down first before roaming into these, you know, uh, sort of deep and dark woods to try to understand an episode like this. Uh, but you know, it's it's not it's not an episode that's for children. That's for sure. I mean, this is the stuff that children's Bible stories and vacation Bible school are made of, and which is very very unfortunate. I, you know, I remember when our family was young, our kids were young, and um, we we had a plaque up in uh, in the hallway, which is a pretty big plaque. It was like maybe a good three feet wide, maybe about a foot high, and it was a wood carving actually of sort of a Santa Claus Noah looking at us and smiling animals, of course, giraffes and elephants and dolphins. I don't know what they're doing there. Probably dogs and cats and, you know, squirrels and things like that. And, you know, everybody's happy and smiling. And uh, the, uh, the, the, the caption underneath said, God's promises never fail. Which I guess is putting a certain kind of spin on the story and one you can't fault people for, for doing. But, you know, I don't think that captures the heart of the story of Noah. This is where things have gotten so bad, the, the, the inclination of the human heart is only evil all the time. That's, that's how the Noah story begins. And God's solution is, you know, there's no plan B here. God's solution is to wipe everything out, to say, you know, oy vey, how could I have, you know, how could this have happened? Let me put it that way. Um, you know, th- this this is not at all what I expected. That's sort of the way God is portrayed. He's He seems to be taken by surprise and then uh, in an act of uh, just exasperation says, everyone's going to die. I'm going to drown everyone. And so I think, you know, that plaque we had for our kids, you know, I think it'd be more realistic of it instead of saying, you know, uh, God's promises never fail. You know, to say something like, God is so mad, he kills everyone, because that is that is what the flood story is depicting. Now, it's deeper than that, and I want to get to that a little bit later. I want to set up the other stories first. Um, but still, you know, this is not the kind of story that makes for, you know, bedtime reading. And it's a problem. You know, I have, um, I'm, I'm sort of Episcopalian, sort of meaning I go, but I'm not a member because I don't want anybody's meat hooks in me. But anyway, uh, that's a story for my therapist. I won't talk about that here. But, uh, you know, the Episcopalians are a great bunch, uh, but Bible reading, personal Bible reading, is not always on their radar. That's just part of the tradition. They read it liturgically, but, you know, personal Bible study is not emphasized. But this church was uh, determined to get through the entire Bible in 90 days. 
which is an astounding task if you think about it. I think that comes out to 20-something chapters a day. And, you know, within the first week, the rector called me um, and said, you know, Pete, can you come speak to us? And I said, well, yeah, well, what about? And he goes, well, we're reading through the Bible, and people are just dropping like flies all over the place. You know, you get to the sixth chapter of the Bible again, and God has had it already. You know, and that that, that can be jarring for people who maybe who, who haven't already been trained that there are certain questions you're not supposed to ask, and you're not supposed to be upset with the Bible. You're supposed to be okay with it. And you get to the flood story, and you sort of wrap your arms around it somehow to make it okay, to make it more palatable. But it's actually, it's a pretty, it, it's a frightening story. And uh, yeah, so reading the Bible just sort of creates these problems for us. Okay, that, that's, that's the flood story. We all know this. Uh, the second example uh, is uh, about God's sort of over-the-top curses and punishments when Israel disobeys. And you know, you get this in a few places, but I think nowhere is it put more starkly than in the book of Deuteronomy, starting in chapter 28, around verse 15, and going into uh, verse 20, uh, chapter 29, rather. And, you know, the, the context here of Deuteronomy, it, it gets a little tricky, but the context is all about exile. And, you know, along with, you know, most biblical scholars, I think Deuteronomy was, you know, at least an early version of it is probably coming from the 7th century, uh, you know, the, the, the 600s, not long before the Babylonian exile, and then probably reworked and edited in the exile and probably even thereafter. And, you know, the exile is in the background of uh, some of the things that Deuteronomy says, because exile is what happens when you disobey God. Okay, so, so much for that. You have this list of curses and punishments, as I said, in chapter 28 into chapter 29, and it's a pretty horrific list of what God will do to you if you're unfaithful to the covenant. There isn't much room for forgiveness here. Um, for example, um, you know, for one, the enemies from a distant land will take you captive. This, is, of course, is alluding to the exile, uh, which when this was written was already passed. It wasn't something that's predicted, really. It's something that has already happened. Uh, but, you know, other curses and punishments are fever, uh, drought, and plight. You know, no water, and you're going to be diseased and have fevers. Your corpses will be bird food. That's another one. You will have incurable boils, ulcers, scurvy, and itches. And folks, just so you know, this is a partial list. Um, you'll be struck with madness, blindness, confusion. You'll be robbed and abused with no help to come. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is beginning to read like a really over-the-top parent or, or maybe even just pick your fascist dictator who won't, you know, brook any disagreement or, or you know, imperfection. Uh, but this is, this is the kind of thing you'd expect from someone who's not in control of himself. You know, a leader who's just has issues and, uh, you know, not, not the kind of person you would voluntarily put yourself under. But now we're talking about God. Right. Actually, we're not done yet. Let's continue with this partial list. Um, other men will lie with your betrothed women. 
That's the punishment. Now, of course, this is male-centered, which is the Bible tends to be, uh, not exclusively, but it tends to be that way. So it's it's not so much this is bad for the women, but this is bad for the men, who you know other men will take their women. That's that's sort of the idea. Um, your livestock will be butchered and stolen from you. Your sons and daughters. This is the one that gets to me as a parent. Your sons and daughters will be taken from you as you look on. Again, this is all from the perspective of the male head of the family, so to speak. Here's one. You will eat your own children in afterbirth and withhold food from loved ones. I'm paraphrasing, by the way. But, okay, that's good. You'll, you know, you're going to be starving so much that you're just not going to only worry about yourself and you're willing to eat your own children in afterbirth. That's how bad this is going to be. And also, just to kick it off, just to come to a good ending here, every malady and affliction not mentioned will also come upon you. Now, I read this and I say, okay, this is really, really over the top. I don't know what to do with this. Um, I remember years ago uh, talking with a, a young father. My kid's already older at this point, but a young father who... You know, wanting to raise uh, his children, he and his wife wanting to raise their children with a knowledge of Scripture and an understanding of the Bible, and not to shy away from the Old Testament. Uh, you know, told me sort of like in a, almost in a triumphant way, he said, "Yes, we're doing our family devotions right now in Deuteronomy." And I think the idea was to sort of impress me a little bit, but. I didn't push it because it's really not my place, but I sort of said, you sure you want to do that? Because there's some stuff happening in there. I'm not sure, you know, if this is kids' literature, you know. Um, now, of course, you can spin it for kids. You, you, can, you, you can put it in a context, but I think at certain ages, children are just not prepared to understand a broader kind of context for reading these kinds of black and white statements. You know, I think parents have to be very wise in what they put in front of their kids. Uh, and I would never read something like this to somebody until they have an understanding a little bit of historical context and the ancient Near East and things like that, which we'll get to in a minute. But anyway, you know, again, this is this is the kind of thing that you might see on the lips of a dictator or something like that. You know, I, I keep thinking of Chancellor Sutler. Remember him in, in V for Vendetta, that big face on the screen looking down on you and, uh, you know, squashing rebellion no matter where it comes from. And, you know, quickly and efficiently, who will not be mocked, who will not be disobeyed. Um, you know, this portrait of God is a difficult one, I think, in the Bible. And. It's not hiding in a couple of corners. It is not the only portrait of God in the Old Testament, but it is a portrait that is rooted in um, what, what theologians call a retributional theology, where, where, where God pays back right uh, for people for disobedience. And it's a difficult one to swallow, and it's something that, you know, People who read the Bible for spiritual sustenance and, and recommend that to others, we have a lot of explaining to do with the flood story and then this section of Deuteronomy and other places. Uh, the third one, of course, is uh, you know the conquest of Canaan. This is the you know the the, the grandmother of all um, of all, uh, you know, violence episodes in the Old Testament. And of course, you know, if, if you're not familiar with it, this is God's uh, command, given in a few places, for the Israelites, after they leave Egypt, 
Right? I mean, here, here's the scenario. After they leave Egypt, they're free. They go to Mount Sinai. They spend about a year on Mount Sinai. And the plan at that point is to go and to enter the land of Canaan from the south, because that's where they are. They're sort of in south in, in the desert. And uh, to, enter Midian, uh, to enter Canaan, rather, and to take it over, to conquer it, which is to say to go to war. Right, to go to war against uh, the Canaanites and to essentially eradicate everything that breathes, which is uh, you know, to exterminate the population, including the animals. And uh, they send spies out to sort of see how things are going, and the spies come back. You can read about this in the book of Numbers. Uh, the spies come back and they say, you know, listen, we have good news and we have bad news. The good news is like, this land is awesome. The bad news is there's no way we're going to take it. The, their cities are fortified. Uh, these people seem to be organized. And on top of that, there are giants. So there's no way. God certainly can't mean this. God becomes angry. And as a result, this is why the Israelites wander in the wilderness for 40 years for the express purpose of allowing that generation that rebelled in the desert to die. So there's more death. And to start over again with a new group. Actually, it's everyone um, under the age of 20 can, you know, they're okay, but anyone like 20 and over, something like that, um, you know, they have to wait for them to die. So you wander around the desert. No instant killing, but 40 years of maybe thinking about it, you know. So 40 years uh, is over, and now they're standing on the brink of entering the promised land. And uh, you go to a couple places like Deuteronomy chapter 7, or maybe more fully Deuteronomy chapter 20, and there you read uh, about God's command to the Israelites saying, listen, Moses is speaking you know, on God's behalf, saying, listen, don't be afraid. God is with you. Don't be afraid like last time. God is with you. He's, he's next to you. you know, as you go in now to enter the land of Canaan and take it, don't be afraid. God is right next to you as you, you know, kill everyone. Uh, and, and so there are basically they're, they're two types of towns that are mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 20. First are towns outside of the land, and you go in and you offer them terms of peace, and if they accept it, then you enslave the people. If they don't accept the terms of peace, you kill the men and then enslave the rest of them anyway. So that's not really nice. All right, that's, that's sort of a rough tribal warlord kind of approach to to you know the towns you pass along the way but when you get to canaan here, here's the thing there, there is no terms of peace all you do is go in and basically you kill everything that has the breath of life in it men women children and um and animals the only thing you leave is trees which is a curious little segment there in that story but you know that's a that's a pretty uh, a difficult thing to stomach, uh, and it, it looks like genocide. It's it's not quite genocide, but it looks like it at least. It looks like this is just come on here, you know, <laughs> kill everything that breathes, you know. And that's difficult for people today because you know when um, when the uh, the towers went down on nine eleven, World Trade Center towers went down. Uh, you know, many Christians uh, I know would use this for apologetic purposes and say, see Islam, this religion of violence, you see what it does? It lent, you know, it drives people to to, you know, flying airplanes into buildings and killing thousands of people. And the response to that on the part of, you know, 
some you know popular public atheists like Richard Dawkins and others was, hey man, did you ever read your own Bible for heaven's sake? You know, so how how can we be against genocide today? Right, and and how can we stand against it when in the Bible God commands it? Right, and that's that's the difficult part, and and. You know, we look at, you know, the, the, the a century of genocides of the 20th century, several of them, that millions upon millions of people. I, I think I, I counted once, according to um, you know, a Wikipedia article on genocides of the 20th century, and something like, I don't know, I, I think you could fill up an empty Yankee Stadium a, like 10 times or something with the number of people who died at the hands of, of ideologues. Who... Many of many of whom were convinced that uh, they were doing God's work, right? So I mean, that's you know. Actually, we'll, we'll get to sort of responses to some of these things in a second. But you know, the, these are uh, you know three pretty you know pretty heinous examples of of violence that you cannot ignore. I don't think you can soft pedal either. I think you have to face them as somebody who is a believer in God and a follower of Jesus and somebody who takes the Bible seriously. You can't avoid these. Okay, well, there are um, several ways in which people have sort of tried to address these issues. And I'm, you know, I'm sympathetic to attempts, and I want, I want to list for you five that I think are common, but not really helpful at the end of the day. You know, how do we handle all this killing in the Bible? How do we explain it? And the issue really, folks, is how do we defend God in view of this killing? And that's something that, you know, theologians call theodicy. Um, And, you know, that means basically, you know, defending God in view of something that looks difficult to defend. Right. So, one attempt, to, I guess, to defend God and to handle all this killing, to, to adequately uh, explain it, is to say, well, listen, God is sovereign. Right? And God is sovereign and God can do whatever he wants. So, we can't really question this. If God wants to kill a bunch of Canaanites or flood the earth or, you know, have the Israelites eat their own children because they, um, you know, disobeyed him or something, you know, if God wants to do that, God can do it because God is sovereign. And you know, my the, the difficulty I have with that with uh, that explanation is that that's actually the problem. You see, in the Bible, God is presented as the sovereign overlord who commands these things. You know, to say, well, God is sovereign, that's simply restating the problem. It's not solving it. You still have the follow up question: Why would a sovereign God, the creator of the cosmos, want to do something like this to anybody? And I think that's a good question to ask. And that's a question my kids have asked. You know, they're all grown now, but when they were younger, you know, why would God do this? And, you know, it's a question that comes up pretty quickly. It, it just, it's so counterintuitive to any notion we have of God. And speaking to Christians now, you know, we've got the whole Jesus factor to deal with as well. So, you know, I, I don't think God is sovereign. That's, that, that's, that's common in, 
in neo-Calvinist and also Southern Baptist arguments. I, I hear this a lot from those two camps accenting the sovereignty of God. And God is sovereign, but is God not a loving sovereign? Is he not a merciful sovereign? Is he not someone who, in the gospel story, is willing to give of himself in a radical way to bring healing to the people, right? So the God is sovereign problem still, you know, that solution is still a problem because it still is like this sovereign God is not one that I can connect with at all, right? Uh, Second is God's ways are mysterious. And I actually have some sympathy for this because I do think we forget that too often. Uh, That, you know, we don't really understand what God does or doesn't do sometimes. But the problem with sort of punting here, you know, God's ways are mysterious, is that if you read the biblical texts, they tell you why God gives this command. It's it's the furthest thing from a mystery. You kill them because they're basically corrupt, gross people who have all sorts of weird sexual practices, including with animals. And they, um, you know, basically are just, you know, these horrible people, right? And, and this is why you kill them. And, and, and see, if you don't eradicate the land of, of, of this population, well, here's what they're going to do. They're going to lead you astray to worship other gods. So they're, they're killed in, in, in a way sort of you, you purify the land from this element, from this impure element, so that God can be properly worshipped in the land. Now, and, and I know for some people, and I get this, that sounds sort of like really self-centered, I will be worshipped properly, kill everyone who does not worship me, I don't want them influencing you, right? So, you know, I I do believe that God is deep mystery, and uh, the older I get, the more I see the truth in that, but I don't think that explains, I don't think this is an adequate defense of what happens, mainly because the biblical stories themselves tell you and remove all the mystery from it. All right, the third is, well, here's why they killed them is because they all deserved it. And this is the way, you know, the Canaanites are portrayed in uncompromisingly negative terms in the Bible. And, uh, you know, they deserved it because they did all these things because they're the sinners and the worst sinners. And, you know, they, they have all these pagan practices and they sacrifice children and they have sex with animals and relatives and things like that. And, you know, okay, that's fine. But typically this is considered, and I agree, this is considered somewhat propagandistic. You tend to portray your enemies in the worst possible light. And, you know, I've, I've mentioned this in other contexts, but, you know, the Canaanites are already labeled as doomed way back in the Noah story because he has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And um, Ham, you know, he, he sees his father's nakedness, which might mean he had sex with his father, but we don't really know. But, you know, the point is that he, there's something he did that was wrong. And when Noah woke up from his drunken stupor after the flood story, you know, he condemns not Ham, but one of Ham's four children, and that child is Canaan. 
and Canaan will be enslaved and subservient to the Israelites. So, you know, the, the Canaanites are sort of doomed already in chapter 9 of Genesis, and, um, you know, they deserve everything they get. That's the way the biblical story is portrayed. They they deserve this because they're so bad. But, you know, again, we work in the Jesus angle here, and, you know, aren't we supposed to think that everyone deserves it you know aren't we don't aren't we to think that everyone is equally culpable before god do we really want to have this sort of gradation of sins and by the way the canaanites weren't the only ones that engaged in these kinds of practices like the worship of other gods you know or you know different kinds of customs or practices i mean everybody did that child sacrifice was not something you did every day but it's known it's not just the Canaanites, right? See, all this all this stems from the Israelite belief, and you see this in Genesis 12 in the beginning of the Abraham story, that the land of Canaan is God's gift to them. So you go in and you have to eradicate the population, right? But to, to justify that the, by saying, they, they well, they deserved it because they're the worst of all the sinners and they really needed to be killed, Uh I, I, that to me that doesn't wash because everybody's bad, and the Canaanites were probably not nearly as bad as the Bible portrays them, because the people writing these stories have a vested interest in expressing themselves in ways that are uncompromising. Uh, the fourth, a couple more to go. Hang with me, folks. Um, a fourth defense is that okay, listen, it, this is really bad. We admit it, but God's not always like that, and that's absolutely true. Uh, there are times when God is is uh, quite merciful and forgiving. The problem, though, is that in the Old Testament, that tends to be something that the Israelites benefit from and not the nations around them. Although there are eschatological visions, you know, of 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 a a future time when healing will be brought to the nations and the nations will recognize the true God, Yahweh, and everything will be okay. So you, you do have sort of a, a hope for, um, uh, you know, the, the nations in the Old Testament. But I'm just going to say all that's utterly irrelevant to this topic in front of us. To say God's not always like that is is problematic because uh, he's not always like that, but that tends to be for the Israelites. He has mercy towards them. The one big exception is the Jonah story, which is a, uh, you know, Jared has had a podcast on that. He's going to have another one. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's the big exception. I think it's a, a beautiful exception and an important one. But, you know, it, you know, God's not always like that doesn't wash for me because it's towards the Israelites. And also, you know, it's um, it's not much of an excuse. You know, I mean, I think of like, I don't know, a bully in grade school who takes, you know, the fifth grader who goes to the first grader and threatens him, you know, to punch him out if he doesn't give him his milk money. And, you know, the, the, the kid goes to the teacher and says, you know, listen, this is what happened. And the teacher says, well, you know, Tim, um, he's not always like that. Right, he, he he only does this what twice a week. It's not a big deal. Just put up with it. So so basically, he's actually a good bully. He's 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 not really a bad bully. He just does it sometimes. See, God's not always like that. Just doesn't wash. The, the problem remains that he's sometimes like that. That's the problem. He's he's even once like that. That's the problem that people have to deal with. Uh, the fifth answer is, I think, closer to the truth, and I want to elaborate on this just a little bit. 
And that is, well, listen, it was the olden days, you know, and this is how people, um, th- this is how things were. These were the rules of the game, so to speak. It was the olden days, and, and this is this is how people did things. They dealt with things violently, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, God is sort of participating in that ancient way of doing things. And I'm halfway there with this explanation. I do think it was the olden days, but I don't think that... Um, God is, I'm, I'm going to use a word that theologians use to talk about this sort of thing. I don't think God was accommodating himself actually to this way of thinking. Rather, and I hope this makes sense, rather I think the Israelites understood God to be acting in certain ways based on their own cultural expectations of what deities do. Right, so I, I want to elaborate on that, but <clears throat> you know, it, it was it was the olden days. That's a good answer, but it's only partially correct. It still it still doesn't help. In other words, if you say it was the olden days, and so God did this because that's the cultural moment, why doesn't God come in and stop the cultural moment? Why doesn't Why doesn't Jesus come then? Why do all this stuff? Right, and I I, I and my, you know, I don't think this actually helps very much. I think it actually just exacerbates the problem. It's almost restating it. Like, yeah, we know it's the olden days. The question remains, why does God participate in this? Right? And so what I want to suggest now is uh, for each of these stories, and again, each of these is like four podcasts, but I, I want to go, um, you know, somewhat succinctly through these three issues. And the flood story is, you know, I, I think here's how I would look at the flood story, understanding the ancient writers of the Bible. See, it's all about the context that they're in, okay? So the flood story, well, you know, as many of us know, and, and, and a decent study Bible will tell you this too, there are many other flood stories in the ancient world. Uh, the biblical flood story is not the oldest, but it's, it's a flood story of the ancient world. And uh, you, you can read about this in other ancient texts, which, you know, there's no test here, so don't worry about it. But things like the Atrahasis epic or the Gilgamesh epic mention these things. Um, but, you know, my understanding is, is a pretty typical one among biblical scholars. I think that there is actually a historical moment here. There is a historical context for the flood. I actually do believe there was a flood. I don't think it was a global flood, but a massive local deluge that maybe put much of that ancient Mesopotamian world underwater. And there's evidence for that, a couple of them. Um, the one that I think is probably most relevant, I don't know this for sure, I'm just sort of riffing here, but there was one around 2900 BCE, which, you know, geologically there's there's clear evidence for that. And, uh, you know, it's not long after that that some of these stories started popping up in cultures older than the Israelite culture. And I think every, you know, every people group that had a religion, which is pretty much everybody, they had to account for this somehow. They had to try to explain why did this happen? And the answer given typically is that something in the divine realm is wrong and the gods are mad at us for some reason. Um, and that may sound ridiculous to us, but I, I you know, I, I remember hearing this when tsunamis hit, you know, 10 years ago or so, and, you know, a, a few of them within a couple of years. And on the news, you know, people saying, you know, why would, 
why would a good God do this in, in, a, in a, essentially a, you know, a, a secular culture? It is a question when these bad things happen, especially involving weather, we tend to look to God and say, what is happening here? Why would God let this happen? Well, the biblical flood story, <clears throat> I think, is doing what every other flood story of the ancient world did, which is to give an account for why this deluge happened now in distant memory from the writer of the Bible. You know, thousand years, two thousand years. It's been a long time, but the memory hangs on. It was apparently a devastating flood. But the, the biblical writer is giving an account of this, uh, of this deluge by basically saying that you know, the cause for this had something to do with our God being very, very angry. And the reason he's angry is because humanity is a mess and is sinning against him and sinning against each other. And plus you have this odd story about the sons of God. This is in chapter 6 of Genesis. The sons of God, probably divine beings of some sort, cohabiting with daughters of men. And giants came as a result of that. In a rather fantastic, somewhat legendary, mythical story. But the point is that what you have there is you have the encroachment of the divine realm into the human realm, like you would have in Greek or Roman myths, for example. And the order of creation is very important in Genesis, that God puts things where they belong, and this act is one of uh, disregarding those borders, right? disregarding those um, that order that God has placed. So, you know, it, the you know again that might not help tremendously, but when you look at you know one other story, like I mentioned the Atrahasis epic, the the reason given for the flood is that the humans that the gods created to do all the heavy lifting down here on Earth started becoming too noisy, which might means something like the noise of rebellion, but it probably just means they're probably noisy and the gods can't get their sleep and so they kill them all. Which is a bit petty, I think. Uh, a lot more petty than the biblical story. Right? I'm not trying to defend the biblical story as you know, not having any problems, but the, the, the point is that the biblical writer is doing his interpretation of how to handle the flood theologically. Everybody had to give an account for this horrible thing, and the biblical writer did what the biblical writer did to move the story along. Uh, you know, again, not to get into great detail here, I talk about this, and the Bible tells me so, but the flood story is certainly connected to Genesis chapter 1 about separating waters. And then in the flood, those separated waters come crashing back down again. Uh, the flood story is theologically connected to the Exodus story, where once again, you know, um, people are, uh, the people of God are kept safe uh, in, in water, you know, the parting of the Red Sea, that kind of thing. Uh, even Moses is, as an infant, when he's put on the, uh, the river, the Nile, and Pharaoh's daughter picks him up, he's put into a basket lined with things like pitch and other things to waterproof it. Well, that's exactly what the ark is. It's, it's lined with pitch and things to keep it waterproof. And in fact, the word for ark in the Noah story, teva, impress your friends, that's the Hebrew word, uh, that also occurs 
in the Moses story, and that's how the basket is described. And that's the only place in the Bible that word is used, those two stories. So there's something theological going on in the narrative about water and God protecting his people through water. And that, to me, is the interesting part about the flood story. But the way it's described here in Genesis, I think, is really simply participating in that ancient way of accounting for this horrible, terrific act and saying God is somehow responsible. Okay, so that's that's how I look at it. I And in that sense, I, I say, okay, listen, this, this reflects ancient Israelite theology. It does not reflect an act of God. I'm... To put it plainly, I don't think God commanded a flood to kill people. I don't think weather works that way. I don't think God does that. You you can if you want. I mean, you know, it's a big world. I don't. Not for one minute. I don't think God does that. Um, but I think the Israelites did think that, and that's the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter what I think. It matters what they thought. And I think that accounts for why the story is written the way that it is. But even so, it's... It's a little bit more interesting. It's got more meat to it theologically than something like the Atrahasis epic. Okay, the curses in Deuteronomy. Let's look at that. I think we have to look at this in the context of ancient politics. Uh, Not just me, but most people would say something like that. Um, in, In the 7th century, you have the um, the still dominance of the Assyrian Empire, called the Neo-Assyrian Empire. And uh, Assyrian kings would have treaties with people that they conquer, where the king is the suzerain, the overlord, and the people conquered are the vassals. And of course, by this point, the northern kingdom has already been captured by the Assyrians, and the Assyrians are still a constant threat to the southern kingdom of Judah. The book of Deuteronomy many people have noticed, uh, looks like and is structured like these ancient Assyrian treaties. It has some of the same kinds of properties like, um, you know, announcing, uh, I'm the king and here's what I can do. You know, I'm powerful and all this sort of stuff. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to preserve you and protect you. And in return, you're going to do these things. You're going to, you know, pay me taxes or pay homage or whatever. If you do, things are going to go great. If you don't, oh man, let's not even go there. Don't want to talk about that horrible thing. Right? And there are many other parallels. Actually, this is another good podcast. We need to do this at some point. But the parallels between Deuteronomy and these Assyrian uh, treaties of the, uh, of the first millennium make some sense of Deuteronomy. See, the over-the-top language is, let's say, a genre. It's a way of depicting you know, the gravity of the situation. And the theology of Deuteronomy isn't so much, boy, this God is harsh, but it's patterning Israel's relationship to God as a nation and in a way that makes sense to them because they, they have to make a choice between two suzerains. That's really the point. Between the Assyrian king who is threatening your existence or the God of Israel, who is your true suzerain. So it's really a choice is being made between who are you going to follow and where are you going to put your trust and where are you going to put your fear, right? Now, again, that doesn't excuse it from, you know, our point of view, maybe our Christian point of view, but historically, the book of Deuteronomy makes sense 
as a theopolitical statement, not simply you know, abstract theology. Let's talk about what God is like. This had a purpose in the first millennium in the 7th century BCE. This had a purpose that was not simply to talk about what God is like, but to talk about politics, because in the ancient world, you can't separate those two. Politics and religion go hand in hand. You don't have one without the other. So I think, you know, looking at this from a political angle makes some sense. I can understand why the ancient Israelites would talk like this. Um, But that doesn't mean that their depiction of God is the one and only one that's always abiding that we have to sort of believe is active in the world today, especially, you know, we're living 3,000 years later and we've got all the Jesus stuff. It's, it seems like, you know, this was a depiction for a time and not a depiction for all time. But what about the Bible being inspired and all that? I, I, I get that. We did a podcast about that too. We'll, we'll talk more and more as, as the seasons go on about things like inspiration and authority. But, um, I don't think we're losing that much here, personally, by realizing that these things have context and they meant something to people back then. And we have to think very creatively today about how to handle these kinds of things in our world, right? And we don't have to sort of succumb to the notion that every line of the Bible tells us exactly what God is like. Okay, enough preaching. Uh, The last one, the conquest of Canaan, again, very controversial, but I think we have to look at this in terms of tribal culture. Um, this is how people talked about their enemies. They kill them, they eradicate them. We have an example of this, a very prominent one, of King Mesha, who is the king of the Moabites. And, uh, you know, during the time of Israel's monarchy, where he uses the same language to talk about, you know, eliminating the Israelites from his land, you know, killing everyone and exaggerated numbers and things like that. So this is a way in a tribal culture of telling the story of defeat. This this is just, see, this is what I said before, you know, it was the olden days, it was. This is how people talked. But does that mean this is how God always is, right? Or is this depicting something about what people understood God to be? Um, Archaeologically, and there's some disagreement on this, but mainly just in conservative circles. But archaeologically, it's very, very hard. In fact, it's impossible, I think, to defend the notion of a conquest such as what we read in the books of uh, Joshua spe- specifically. Um, you simply don't have evidence for the kind of military um events that you would expect to see some evidence for. There is some evidence in some towns, and probably what's behind this, not unlike the flood story, is some historical hook where there were skirmishes and battles between people who were trying to populate the land, and there were other people there, and some key cities were taken out and repopulated. And you do have evidence for that sort of thing, but it's very, very, very minimal. It's also spread out over a very long period of time, uh, a couple hundred years, And uh, not really the story that you read in Joshua, which is a fairly quick takeover that's substantively effective. Not 100% effective, but substantively effective. So I think, you know, the way I put it in the Bible tells me so, I put it something like this. God never commanded the Israelites to kill the Canaanites, but the Israelites believed God to have told them that. That's how they understood 
you know, the nature of the divine connected to their warring culture. You know, we are always thinking of God within the cultural context that we come out of. It's inevitable. No one talks about God from the top down. We're always talking about God from the bottom up. That's simply inevitable. And so I look at this and I say, listen, I don't blame them for talking this way. Yeah, I use the analogy in the Bible tells me so. It's sort of like it's school ground, uh, school boys in a schoolyard. There are rules of the game. There are ways of talking about how great your dad is, you know. And you may exaggerate. My dad lifted up a truck or something like that. You know. And I remember, you know, this happening when I was like in seventh grade or something on, on the schoolyard, bragging about our dads. And um, it's all rooted in love and it's authentic. But it's also exaggerated. And there are ways of talking about your dad that in the schoolyard will give the effective message to those around you that your dad is, in fact, the best, better than their dads. And I think the way the Israelites talked about warfare is similar to that. It's, it's, it's a similar way of, of um, it's an analogy to explaining why they describe God the way that they did. I don't think God is a warring monarch who says, I want you to kill everyone and take their land. I don't believe that. The Israelites did. That's fine. I respect them for believing that. I understand why. I want to understand their theology and not accept necessarily what they say is historically accurate. See, there's a difference. I'm not dismissing these stories. I'm trying to understand them in their context and then take that with me to, you know, try to work out what it might mean today for, you know, people living, you know, a couple, three thousand years later. That's, I mean, that is the task of uh, people reading the Bible. We've always had that task of having to um, you know, transpose biblical stories and biblical moments into times and places that they were not written for. And in saying that, I've just described the entire history of Jewish and Christian interpretation of the Bible. That's what we've always been doing, right? No need to stop now. Right? And people have had trouble with these stories since, you know, at least in Christianity, since a very, very early time. Okay, so th those are sort of how I explain these three moments as, I guess to put a, um, a sharp point on it, as cultural phenomena, right, that, um, you know, that we need to come to terms with. These are stories from long, long ago and far, far away. And as I like to remind, uh, you know, my students, uh, the time of, say, you know, King David is as far removed from us backwards as the year 5000 is removed from us forward in time. I mean, you have to let that settle in. This was a different time, a different place. And, uh, you know, we should not presume simply to lift something from this and have it make sense immediately in our context. This takes work, you know, and, and people have been thinking about this and working on it for a very long time. You know, we're not the first people to notice all this, you know, um, we're just not, and we're not the first ones to say, I, I, you know, origin, you know, third century, a Christian interpreter, some love him, some hate him, but, you know, he would say something like things that are just morally problematic, or that's, that's a signal to us, that we have to look for a deeper meaning somehow and not just sort of accept it because God isn't like this. And I just, I like the bluntness. So, you know, it's long ago. We're not the first people to see this. Um, as I said before, you know, there were rules for how you talk back then about all sorts of things and violence is a part of it. 
And, uh, you know, I like a quote from one of my seminary professors I use a lot, and he said something like, you know, the Bible looks the way that it does because God lets his children tell the story. And I think we have to remember that even the biblical writers are children in terms of the grand mysteries of God and in terms of being uh, limited by their time and by their context. And to me, this is just, it's refreshing for me to think of the Bible that way. Not as a rule book that... Um, you know, tells us, here, here, here's what God is like, take this with you, never debate it, never argue it. But it's more giving us reflections. And, and I want to put it this way, snapshots of genuine faith in God in that time and place. But that does not relieve us the duty, of the duty of um, thinking about, okay, how does this God relate to us here in our time and place? You take that text very seriously. You don't dismiss it but you also acknowledge that this is unworkable. How do we move from that horizon, the ancient one, to the one we're in now? What I like about uh, these violence passages is that they actually uh, force us to have this kind of discussion. And I think that's very, very important. Um, a, a last point I want to make here before we break uh, is you know, a question that comes up a lot. They said, well, you know, I hear what you're saying. I guess it's sort of nice, but... How can I trust the Bible? Okay, that's a good question, but I want to push that in another direction. Maybe the point of all this is to trust God and not to trust the Bible or our interpretation of the Bible. Well, okay, well then how does the Bible and God connect? Is there no connection between the one? No, I, I think there isn't, but I would put it this way. I think what the Bible does is it records for us the acts of God but from the point of view of the people experiencing them. So, you know, the Bible tells them, let me put it this way, the Bible tells us something of the acts of God. And for Christians, we would say ultimately that is, uh, you know, it bears witness to Jesus and who Jesus is and the kind of Savior Jesus is. So the, the Bible bears witness to the acts of God ultimately that culminate in, in Jesus Christ. And that's good. That's what the Bible does. It bears witness, but it does so, and here's the tricky part. Here's what we're seeing in this whole podcast. It bears witness. The Bible bears witness through ancient categories, through ancient ways of thinking, through contextually limited ways of thinking. And our sacred responsibility, I'll put it that way, our sacred responsibility is to continue the engagement of God with this script we have called the Bible, but also looking for how God is maybe opening up and opening us up to, you know, ways of thinking that may be different even from some of the biblical writers. And you might say, well, that just opens up a whole can of worms. Yeah, it sort of does, but it doesn't because that can of worms has been open for a long, long, long time. I'm not opening up a can of worms by saying this. It is open. I'm just trying to like keep the worms from falling off the table somehow, right? Okay, that's a horrible analogy to end with, but I think we're going to do that anyway. Um, listen, folks, I mean, this is the kind of topic that just keeps on giving, and, and you can't get away from it. And, and I think dealing with it reveals a lot about what we think of God, and it's, it's a, almost a laboratory for thinking theologically and hermeneutically, meaning, you know, how do you interpret biblical texts? And for that reason, I think it's, it's something worth talking about again and again and again. And I'm sure we will revisit this topic at some future podcast, maybe even in season two. 
Okay, folks, with that, we will bring this to an end. I thank you again for listening, for um, being uh, faithful partners to us by listening to the podcast and being part of our Patreon community, those of you who are. And uh, again, we don't take that for granted. So um, blessings to you, and until next time, bye-bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.